It was a hot summer in Topeka, Kansas in 1896. A young pastor of a downtown church was wrestling with a question that he kept having recur in his prayer time and in his thoughts. His church was filled with people who ran businesses and were community leaders. And yet he, he didn't see the connection between their professed Christian faith and the community that they were leading. And so as he sat in the sweltering heat in the days before air conditioning, he began to, to wonder and ponder what, what, what would their life look like? What would his city look like? What would his life look like if, if the people who heard him preach, if the people who worshiped together would actually take Jesus seriously? As he thought about it, and the question resonated, he, he began to, to draft a sermon, a sermon that, that grew into a, a series of sermons that summer in Topeka in 1896. And in fact, the, 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 the sermons became almost chapters in a book, and each week they would, they would take just another piece of the question of what would it look like to serve Jesus here? What would it look like to to do what Jesus wanted me to do in this situation in my life. And as he shared it with his congregation, God began to do a work in their midst. And, and at the end of the summer, there was a sense of renewal and a sense of commitment to, you know what, I, I really do want to take Jesus seriously. Members of the congregation said to him, Pastor, th these, these sermons, they, they've almost become like a novel, each one of them a chapter, and, and the story is, is really one of following in the steps of Jesus. And, and so we just wondered, would you, would you contact someone? and Could we have it all put together as a book? And so he sent the transcripts and the manuscripts off to six different publishers. And all six of them said, no, nah, nobody will buy that book. Sorry, preacher, but nobody wants to hear about that. In desperation, he, he turned to a friend of his in Chicago, a colleague with whom he had done work before, and he said, look, my people just wanted to have these things printed, and, and I was just wondering, you, you don't print books, you, you print pamphlets, and what if, we, what if we made these into like a, a series of pamphlets or, or a, a novel idea at that time, a paperback book? And so they did, and the initial run sold, and the next run sold. And someone picked up a copy in Britain and more sold and more sold. And so much so that, that in the next 25 years, before it was ever published as a, as a hardbound book, that series of sermons, that, that summer in Topeka that became known as the book In His Steps sold 33 million copies worldwide translated into over 15 different languages. And the author, finally, in 1920, some 24 years after preaching the series of sermons, finally, finally had someone who would publish this book in Heartbound. I tell you the story for several reasons, not the least of which is I have with me today a first edition 1920 signed copy of that book. It's entitled 
in his steps. The pastor, author, his name was Charles Sheldon. I read this book, not this edition. I I read a a reprint of it as a 12-year-old boy, and it changed my life. And I watched over the years as as others encountered this book. And in fact, in the late 20th century, 100 years after its first sharing with the congregation in Topeka, this book became another cultural phenomenon. People began to rediscover it. and, And Christian marketers, being what Christian marketers are, just couldn't pass up the opportunity. And so the question, what would Jesus do, became boiled down to just these four letters, WWJD. Maybe you've seen the bracelets. Maybe you're wearing one of the bracelets. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker. Maybe it's on your car. It all comes from a hot summer in Topeka and a congregation wrestling with the question, what would it look like if if every decision I made, if everything that I did in my life, if 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 I would ask the question, what would Jesus do? In this situation, in this moment in time, with this decision, this copy is very important to my family. You see, um, a few years ago, my wife and I were helping the gentleman who was her pastor for her entire childhood and teenage years uh, find a place for his library. His name was Dr. Arlo Newell. And as we were packing the 4,000 plus volumes of his library to be shipped overseas to the Asia Bible College of the Church of God, my sons and my wife and I were going through packing and and my wife came across this and she opened the leaf and realized this is a first edition signed copy of the book In His Steps. And she went to Dr. Newell and said, I am not shipping this to India. I want it. (laughs) And he said... You're my daughter in Christ here. And so that's why my wife, on this snowy, wintry, mixed day, made me put it in a baggie to bring to you today. (laughs) You are my witnesses. It made it. It is safe. And I I share it with you because I, I, I find it very curious, this question, what would Jesus do? And I find it very curious that that in the last part of the 19th century and then again in the last part of the 20th century that this question would, would rise up. But, but the greatest reason I find it curious is because I've, I, like you, I've, I've seen the people who wear the bracelets. I've seen the cars that have the bumper stickers. I, I know what the question means. WWJD, what would Jesus do? I've also seen the, the kind of snarky comments about it from people. I've I've also seen the people with that bumper sticker driving like wild people on the interstate. I've I've seen athletes wearing bracelets that say WWJD, swearing at officials. I've I've been flipped off by arms wearing the WWJD bracelet. (laughs) And I I think to myself, you know, if we're going to really ask the question, then then maybe just maybe we ought to ask the question with honesty. What would Jesus really do? Charles Sheldon came to this question because he had a a conviction growing in his heart in 1896 that that if we're really going to follow Jesus, then we probably ought to feed the hungry. That that if we're really going to follow Jesus, we probably ought to care for the poor. 
In fact, he's looked at as one of the creators of something that's referred to as a social gospel. A gospel that says that if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to engage life, then you're going to engage life on Jesus' terms and you have to ask those questions. What would Jesus do in your situation? Who would Jesus love in your life setting? What would be the passion that Jesus would bring to life? What, what would really happen? I, I find it interesting that in the last of the 19th century, in the last of the 20th, and maybe, maybe now in these still somewhat early days of the 21st century, I mean, we're almost you know a quarter of the way through it, but, but what would it look like? I mean, come on. We look at our world and everybody has an opinion about who Jesus is. Everybody has an opinion about what God would do. I mean, you look at politically and there's one party that says Jesus approves of them. And you look at another party and they say Jesus approves of them. And, and quite honestly, if you look at the scriptures they use to buttress their arguments, they both use the same scriptures. And you can make a, you can make an, a, a case for, for either one, but neither case convinces the other side. And we're stuck in the middle of this this sense of despair, and it's not unlike the end of the 19th century, not unlike the end of the 20th century, and it's not unlike the end of the first century. And that's really why this book intrigues me. That's why this question has captured my heart is that, so what does it really mean to live like Jesus? What does it really mean to have a life designed the way Jesus would design a life? I mean, everybody's got an opinion, but, but whose opinion should we share? What should we really value? How should we really engage the process? And, and so I, for me, when I get to those questions, I turn to the Bible to the people who knew Jesus when he walked on the face of this earth. And, and, and this winter season, we're, we're really engaging with one of the people who knew Jesus the best. A, a guy named John, who had a brother named James. They had a business partner friend named Peter. They all worked for James and John's father, Zebedee. They were, they were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Until one day they met Jesus. And he changed their life forever. And from the earliest days of Jesus' ministry, John was there. John was there, as I told you last week, when water was turned into wine. He was there when lame people began to walk. He was there when blind people could see. He was there when dead people were raised. He was there with Jesus on the night before Jesus was crucified. He heard Jesus pray the prayer, Father, if there's any way to let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours. He was there when Jesus was hanging on the cross, breathing his last. It was John, the beloved disciple, to whom Jesus said, Hey, John, my mom, she's your mom. Hey, mom, this is your son who's going to take care of you. I know I've got brothers. I, I know there are other people that, that, in the family, but, but this, is, this is my beloved disciple, John. He knows me. He knows what I value. You see, if we're really going to live with the style of Jesus, then we've got to understand the heart of Jesus and in order to understand it, we have to listen to the voices of those who walked with him and listened to him. And that's why, that's why John's words mean so much. That's why this letter that he wrote near the end of his life 
to the churches around the city of Ephesus. Long after Christianity had left Jerusalem and spread throughout many areas of the world, long, long after he had come to peace with all the stuff that God had done through Jesus Christ, long after he had made the decision that he would follow Jesus and he would do what Jesus would do, and he would know because he was there when Jesus did it, he wrote these words. Listen from 1 John chapter 1. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. You you see, the answer to the question, what would Jesus do, isn't a checklist of perfectionism. For those of you who, who, who get real anxious when you hear people talk about what would Jesus do, because you just know that you just don't have it within you to do all the things you've heard that Jesus would do. You don't have it within you to do the stuff that that you think a God incarnate, the word become flesh, would do. You're not God. You don't have that goodness in you, and you know it. And so you're you're looking and going, hey, Pastor, listen, man. If you're going to judge us all by by the standard of Jesus, then, then, then I just don't measure up, and this just isn't a place for me. But I want you to know, if you really understand the standard of Jesus, like John did, then we all have an opportunity to measure up. Because while none of us is perfect, and I just need you to know that that living the lifestyle of Jesus isn't one of perfection. You can drop that ruse. You You can let that fantasy go. You're never going to be perfect. So just relax. Understand that there is a way to live your life with the style of Jesus. But only, only if you understand what John was saying to us in the late first century and, and what God through Charles Sheldon was trying to say to us in the late 19th century. And, and I would even suggest to you what God is trying to say to us in these first years of the 21st century. And that is that God is light. In him there, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to, to live in the light, but we live in the darkness, we're lying to ourselves. 
If, if we're telling everybody, hey, I'm living a Christian life. I'm living the way God wants me to live. And then we're secretly addicted to pornography. Or we're having an affair. Or we're lying on our taxes. Or we're harboring bitterness in our heart. Or we're abusing our children. Or doing any of the number of things that, quite honestly, when I, when I look at the, the younger generation that, that's coming, some, some of you guys are, are university students. I love your passion. I love what you want to do for God. I, I love seeing that. And, and sometimes I, I want to look at you as, as someone who's walked the path a little further than you and, and, and say a couple of things to you. First of all, I want to say to you, for all the things my generation has done wrong, I'm sorry. I, I really am. If you've been hurt by the church, I, I, I just need you to understand, most of the time it wasn't intentional. We, we just screw up a lot. And so I, I'm sorry we've not given you a perfect world. But I need you to know, nobody gave us one either. And we've just kind of muddled our way through it. And, and through the work of God in our hearts and in our lives, we, we keep finding a way through. And, and, and I just need you to understand that there, there is no perfectionism in the gospel. There is a perfect God. A perfect God who loves imperfect people and who calls us to live in the fashion and a passion and a style that he lives with. And that's what John is talking about. When he says, this is the message we proclaim to you. God is light. He didn't say, you're light. <laughs> he said, God is light. And what he said is, in, in God, there is no darkness at all. So if you're wandering around in the darkness, claiming to be in the light, you're lying to yourself. So the first thing you've got to do, the first thing you have to do in order to to, to find the answer to that question, what would Jesus do? How do I walk in the steps of Jesus? How, how do I live the life of Christ? How do I live with the style of Jesus? Here's the first thing. Be honest. Admit up front. You don't got this. Oh, you keep saying, oh, I got this. No, you don't. No, you don't. Years ago, I, I fancied myself a car mechanic I had a, a radiator that had broken on my car when I was driving home to St. Louis. My father-in-law was an engineer. My father-in-law had a, a saying that he would say quite frequently, with the right tool and the right instruction, you can fix anything. My family, we were raised with, if you've got baling wire, duct tape, and a hammer, you can fix anything. And so I went down to the, uh, we went home for Thanksgiving. The radiator was acting up. I had a day while they're inside making all the food for the next day. I, I drove down to the local auto parts store, bought a new radiator for my car. Took a pair of vice grips, a hammer, some duct tape, a few clamps. Went out, started changing the radiator on my car. My father-in-law just pulled up a chair and watched. He just sat there. He heard me, I'm banging my knuckles on things. I'm, I'm kind of rumoring everything but Church of God cussing, you know. I mean, I'm just right there, angry. That should work better. Blah, blah, blah. He just never said a word. He's the most patient man. And he kind of leaned under one time and said, hey, you want to try this? It might help. It was a screwdriver. But it was just the right size and just the right one. And all of a sudden, 
things that I'd been banging with that hammer and those vice grips, they just kind of fell into place. And I went, wow, maybe, maybe I should ask the old guy who knows how to work on cars. That's a thought, you know. And, and, and so he coached me through, and, 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 and I, I got it finished. And, and, and I remember coming out from under the car and looking at him and saying, why didn't you tell me you knew how to do this? He said, you didn't ask. I thought maybe you would learn more doing it yourself. I thought, man, I could have at least had my knuckles clean or something. I think sometimes in our lives, some of us think the only way we can learn is to, to do it ourselves. And the first thing John wants the early church to know and wants us to know is that we don't have the ability. See, we live in darkness. God is light. If we are living in the darkness and saying we're living in the light, then we're stumbling around and we're, we're broken and we're, and we're wounded. So we need to be honest. So don't worry. The first answer to what would Jesus do is Jesus would be honest with himself. And living the lifestyle of Jesus means being honest with yourself and with others about who you are. John had learned this because because John, John was in the room when Jesus said, you know what? Some of you are going to deny me, but it's okay. I've prayed for you. You're going to be all right. And Peter, big, boisterous Peter. I mean, John and James were known as the sons of thunder. But their friend Peter, he was the loudmouth of the bunch. And he pops off. If all the rest of these guys leave you, Jesus, I'm not leaving you. I'll always be there for you. And Peter meant it. With every bit of his heart, he meant it. John was there when the authorities came to, to, to arrest Jesus, and Peter whipped out a sword and cut off the ear of one of the guys there. Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, put the sword up. Reached down and picked the man's ear up and reattached it to his head. It's like, here, I made this. Let me put it back together. And, and John was there. And, and John was there. In fact, John was, John was responsible for Peter being allowed into Caiaphas' house because John knew Caiaphas and they knew John. And, and John got Peter into the courtyard where Peter would three times deny Jesus before the rooster crowed. He watched Peter say all these things he was going to do for God. And then fail exactly like Jesus told him he would. When John says, look, if we say that we walk in the light, but we're actually walking in the darkness, he's not talking in some kind of esoteric way. No, he's, he's talking reality. He's talking about what he's seen. He's talking about what he's done. And he's watched it happen time after time after time. And what he wants you and me to know is this. If we're really going to follow Jesus, if we're really going to ask what Jesus would do, then we've got to stop living for an image. We've got to stop putting up a front. We've got to stop trying to say to people, hey, you can think this of me. No, no, no. Be honest. 
you think you can fool God? Like he doesn't know what you're afraid of? Like he doesn't know what you're trying to hide from him and from everybody else? He's God. He has the hair on your head numbered. He knows your name. He knows the day you were born. And get this, he knows the day you're going to die. He knows it. He knows every failure, every heartache, and he still loves you. So John tells us, look, living like Jesus isn't about being perfect. It's about being honest with yourself and others. Look at the way he says it. This is the message which we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There's a principle of light and darkness I want you to get this morning. I've told it to you before, those of you who worship here regularly. It's a very important principle. That is this. Darkness can never push away light. Darkness can never push away light. Light always pushes away darkness. Try it for yourself sometime this afternoon. Go into a room in your home. Shut all the shades. Turn off all the lights. And then stand at the door. Turn the light on in the next room or in the hallway. And then I want you to open the door and look at the doorway. And I want you to see, does the darkness come out into the hallway in the light? Or does the light go into the darkness? Every time light pushes away darkness. Darkness never overcomes light. What John is saying to us is when we're honest with ourselves, we've got to come before God and we've got to say to God, hey God, look, this is who I am. This is the darkness in my life. I need you. I need you to, to do something with this darkness. Bring your light into it. Again, John had seen it lived out because he'd watched that same Peter who had said he would do all this great stuff for Jesus, and then he, he denied that he even knew Jesus. It was John who was out in a boat fishing with, with Peter and some of the other disciples. He records the story for us in John chapter 21, where, where, where while they're fishing, this guy comes up on the seashore, and he yells out at them and says, Hey, did you catch any fish? And they're like, Well, no. Well, put your nets over there. They throw the nets over there and suddenly they're catching fish and catching fish and catching fish and then they remember, you know what? That's what happened the first time we met Jesus and suddenly Peter looks at James and John and the others and goes, hey, hey, that's Jesus over there. That's Jesus alive after being dead. That's Jesus, the resurrected Lord. That's our Lord, he's there. And this time instead of Peter doing what he did the first time, do you remember what he did the first time? The first time Jesus did this, Peter fell on his face in front of Jesus in the boat and said, get away from me. I can't handle this much light in my life. It's out of that kind of confession that Jesus said, hey, come with me, man. I'm gonna make you a fisher of people, not just fish. But this time, years later, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the denial. Now, now he invites, he, he's sitting there and Peter's like, man, I, I gotta go be with Jesus. And he jumps out of the boat and he swims to shore. By the time James and John and the others have the boats there, Peter and Jesus are sitting around the fire cooking fish. And it's at that moment that Jesus says to Peter, hey, Peter, 
do you love me more than, more than this fishing thing? Peter says, well, of course I do. Uh, feed, feed my lambs. Um, hey, hey, Peter, do, do you love me more than your buddies around here? This camaraderie you've got with these. Do, do you love me more than, more than that? Well, Jesus, of course I do. Uh, feed, feed my lambs. And a few minutes later, for the third time, Jesus looks at Peter. Peter, do, do you love me more than? And he can hardly get the words out because Peter's like, Lord, you know, I love you more than anything. Good. Feed my sheep. Why in the world did Jesus ask him three times? Because Peter denied him three times. Why in the world did John put that into the story of the gospel? Because Peter was John's friend, and he watched Peter learn the lesson of what it means to live in darkness when there's light available and to choose light over darkness. Because here's what Jesus would do. Jesus offers cleansing in response to our confessions. Jesus took Peter and he restored Peter. Jesus will take your life, your darkness, your lie, your hiddenness, the stuff you've got that you don't think anybody knows. Jesus will take that and he'll cleanse you. But in order to do it, you've got to be honest. You want to live like Jesus? You want to do what Jesus would do? Then live with honesty and confess everything to him and discover, discover what John knew. Discover that, that Jesus cleanses you when you confess. Here's the way he put it. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Some of you are listening and going, well, pastor, that, that makes sense. I mean, this is church. That's what you're talking about is honesty with God and, and being cleansed and forgiven. Yeah, I know. But some of you carry around bags. You, you, you carry around knapsacks full of all the hurt and all the abuse and all the failure in your life. And, and, and John knew that if you're, really gonna, if you're really gonna live the way Jesus wants you to live, if you're gonna live with the style of Jesus, then it's not just about having your confession cleansed. It's about God taking your failure and growing something out of it. You see, living with the style of Jesus creates growth out of your failure. You've got to be honest about your failure. You've got to confess it. He'll cleanse it. But don't just stop there. Because what God wants to do is, is God wants to take you and he wants to grow you. I mean, think again about John and Peter, the relationship they had. See, the same John who, who had seen all this in Peter's life, who'd seen the difference Jesus made and watched Jesus restore Peter, it was this same John who was walking with Peter. When Peter was on his way to the temple, after Peter had preached the greatest sermon ever preached where thousands of people came to know Jesus on Pentecost, and John and Peter are walking to the temple and there's a lame man sitting outside 
And he's begging for money because that's what lame people did in that culture. It's the only option they had to survive. And Peter and John stopped. John was with Peter when, when Peter looked at him and said, man, look, I don't have any money, but what I have, I give to you. Rise and walk in the name of Jesus. And John saw the same Peter who denied Jesus, the same Peter who, who had been confessing to Jesus, the same, the same Peter who had been broken and cast aside by everybody else, but restored by Jesus. He watched that same Peter be used by Jesus to bring wholeness to another man. You want to talk about growth? They got arrested for it, by the way, John and Peter. And this time they're brought in front of the Jewish authorities and, and they're like, you did this in the name of Jesus. And this time Peter, Peter's all, he, he is not the same Peter now. He is not the same man that was denying Jesus in the, in the courtyard. No, no, no. This time, this time Peter's looking at the, the authorities and he's saying, look, I don't care what you do to me. This is John. He doesn't care either. I think John's like, can I vote? You know, can, can I be a part? But they're both looking at him and saying, you know what? It doesn't matter. You tell us not to mention the name of Jesus. We can't help but mention the name of Jesus. Because Jesus, Jesus made us honest with ourselves. And Jesus cleanses us when we confess. And Jesus is growing us out of our failures. Listen to the way he says it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What would Jesus do? Jesus would live his life in the light. He would live his life with honesty about who he is and what's happened, knowing that the light always overcomes the darkness and that he, he can be cleansed and confessed. What can you do? The same thing. You, you can let God grow you out of your failures. You can let God teach you how to live the lifestyle of Jesus. Not a checklist, not a perfectionism, but a holiness that comes out of this relationship. And it's an interesting relationship because you see it's a relationship marked by both freedom and dependence. It's marked by freedom from the, from the past that you've had. It's marked by freedom from the pain that you've endured. It's marked by freedom from the sin and the darkness that overcomes your life. But living with the style of Jesus isn't just about being free. See, that, that's why we, we, we talk about, I'm free, free, forever, I'm free. We sing that. But see, it's not just about being free from your past. It's about being in a relationship, being dependent upon God now. See, you are set free from the darkness in order to live dependent on the light. What would Jesus do? He would choose light over darkness. That's why I love the song we sang a few minutes ago. It was new to all of us. Pat Barrett, who's going to be here in a few weeks, 
just released it. This concept that we're all a piece of canvas and God is the artist. This concept that we're all clay and God is the potter who's shaping us. It's really a song about the fact that God's not finished with us yet. And what God is inviting you and me to do is to, is to live in a life and live in a lifestyle of, of being honest with ourselves and honest with God and honest with other people. Not, not putting on an image, not putting on a facade, not acting like we're more than we are, but being honest. And, and trusting that when we confess, God's response is not, oh, you dirty person. His response is, oh, my loving child, I already love you. I know what you did. I've already forgiven you for it. I'm just waiting on you to accept it. I'm just waiting on you to understand that my heart is for you, not against you. It's us understanding that when the painter's painting the picture or the potter's shaping the clay, they're doing it with a greater vision in mind. And they take all the little pieces and all the little failures and all the things and they, and they, and they bring them together and, and out of our failure, they bring growth. That's what Jesus would do in your life if you let him. He would let the light so shine in you that it would push all the darkness away and you could be free from the darkness and live dependent on the light. If that's the way you'd like to live today, if you'd like to do what, what a congregation in Topeka, Kansas did in the 1890s, or what a group of people in Ephesus and the surrounding area did in the 80s and 90s, the original 80s and 90s, or what the Holy Spirit's asking us to do in the 21st century then I'm going to ask you to take a challenge with me right now. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And if you're in a place right now in your life where you want to make a decision and you want to say, you know what, I, I really do. I want to live with the style of Jesus. I want to be honest. I want to confess. I want to be cleansed. I want to, I want to be that person. Then what I want us to do is to just... Just listen to God. And if God's telling you, you know what? That's the way you need to live. Then as soon as you know for sure that that's how you want to live, maybe you made this decision years ago. It won't take you long, but maybe today, today you're wrestling with it. Do you really want to live like this? Then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you just listen to God invite you stand. Would you do it? Bow your head. Close your eyes. Listen for what Jesus would do.